This is Stimulus. Hello, my friends. Rob Orman here. Welcome back. And if you're new to the show, it is great to have you. Today's episode on how to be an effective mass casualty event first receiver, it's a bit different than our usual fare because it's very specific, very detailed, very specific for a very specific group of people. And I'm going to tell you in advance, number one, there's some graphic descriptions in here. And number two, the target audience is not the general public. Most of our shows, they are, I think, you know, they're for everybody. But this is directed toward those who will be responding to a mass casualty event in some capacity. That can be doctors, nurses, EMTs, other first responders, law enforcement, military. And the unfortunate reality of this is that anyone can be impacted by a mass casualty. You could be on the receiving end at the hospital. You might be a victim. You might be somebody who just gets there first and is helping to take care of things. So even if you're not in healthcare, first responder, military, et cetera, and this is something that interests you, have at it. But I wanted to put in the proviso, this is going to get super detailed and clinical. And the content for today's show does have some overlap with what I do on ERCast. And in fact, our guest and I recorded something specifically for ERCast for emergency clinicians. And that gets into some of the really nuanced detail of using trauma severity scores and triage scores in the heat of a mass casualty. But let's talk about our guest. He is a singularly unique individual. Mike Schertz, MD, spent 13 years as a Green Beret. He was a special forces medic. He then went to medical school and completed his training in emergency medicine, now works full-time as an emergency physician. But most germane to this conversation, he is the founder and purveyor of crisis medicine. I have not seen anything like crisis medicine. I've taken some of the courses and just such a level up in the knowledge base for managing trauma patients, managing high-risk patients in austere environments, dealing with active shooters, active violent situations where care is ongoing during the active event. He does a lot of training on this. He does heavy focus on non-governmental organizations who have non-medical personnel working in high-threat regions. But as you'll see, he speaks to anybody who's going to be involved in this stuff. And if you've seen our video on how to place a tourniquet in a gunshot wound, what we'll link to in the show notes. Mike is the guy on that video teaching me how to do it. And I will honestly say, I had put a lot of gauze and fingers in gunshot wounds throughout my career, but my skill level increased so much after just that one little filming session in Mike's living room. And he's an expert in this stuff, not only in theory, but in practice, as you'll hear. And on a personal note, over decades as an emergency physician, a mass casualty event was the thing that scared me the most. And it wasn't even close. And that's why, you know, I come back to a lot in teaching and do presentations on it and try to dissect what happens in these events. These events are unpredictable, chaotic, and ever-changing, especially in their early evolution. But with proper mindset and structure, you can take control and do this well. And we're going to start off talking about a term that you may have never heard before, and it's not commonly used, and that is first receiver. Now, first responder, pretty much everyone's heard of that first responder, especially in these days. But first receiver is a singularly unique position as it applies to a mass casualty. Here we go. How do you define first receiver? 
So the term was initially coined in 2003, uh, and it was in regard to chemically contaminated casualties being taken to non-specialized hospitals. Uh, and those were termed first receiving hospitals. And you can imagine this is in the wake of September 11th, you know, 2001. Uh, there was a lot of money in kind of CBRN preparedness. The Committee for Tactical Emergency Casualty Care used the term as well to indicate uh, non-trauma hospitals that are going to get trauma patients in the event of some kind of a traumatic mass cal active violent incident uh, where, you know, there's more patients that can go to just the trauma centers. Wait, so you said it was initially for chemically contaminated patients or like potentially chemically, chemically contaminated patients? Correct. The first, uh, the first mention of it in the literature was in 2003 in an article kind of talking about, you know, we have first responders, law enforcement, EMS, fire, and then we have first receiver, you know, facilities that are going to get potentially chem bio, you know, casualties because that okay. was the concern then. So when, when we're talking about like being a first receiver of a mass casualty, how does mass casualty or the maybe the mindset of being a first receiver differ from surge capacity because I mean like surges happen all the time in hospitals. You and I know that. I mean you you, you hear it that term bandied about, and we're on surge capacity. We need to account for surge capacity. I mean it happens on a weekly basis, but a mass casualty, obviously, you know that's like a, a once or twice in a career thing. Right. So surge capacity is generally defined as uh, a hospital hospitalizing or having the ability to hospitalize more than 20% over their licensed bed capacity. So my hospital will hold 100 beds. If I have to surge, I have a plan to go up to 120. When we're talking about these um, no notice or limited notice mass casualty events, you have 10 minute warning that a terrorist event happened and there's hundreds of casualties. That's not surge capacity. Uh, what you're talking about is throughput. You're going to get this huge amount of casualties in a very short period of time into the emergency department. And how are you going to get them out? All right. So, so surge capacity, we're talking about making bedroom or the, we've got more patients than our, our beds can hold. And it's, it's in this certain number. And then mass casualty, we're talking throughput, we're talking saving lives and that, that other stuff almost becomes irrelevant because you don't really even have a choice. Correct. Correct. Exactly. And, you know, it's interesting. There's a, uh, there's a CDC calculator to estimate how many casualties you're going to get from these events. And if you look at the number of patients that present to your facility in the first hour and double it, that's a fairly reasonable and accurate estimate of your total casualty count that you'll receive. So another way to look at it is if there's 100 casualties your department's going to get, you're going to get 50 of them in about the first hour and 75 of them by the second hour and then the last you know quarter trickle in after that. And that's how these emergency departments become overloaded. 50% of your patients show up in the first hour. So I want to walk through some of the aspects of being a first receiver or just kind of setting yourself up for as much success as you can have in these situations. And it really starts outside the hospital. I mean, you're going to get people by private vehicle. You're going to get people by EMS, going to get people by police or whatever. I mean, just kind of, they flood you. 
But when it comes to EMS, right, usually when somebody comes in by paramedic, you're, you know, they're really nicely packaged. I mean, it's amazing. A lot of their care is frankly complete, sometimes not, but, you know, they have IVs, they have this, they have that. Maybe they've, you know, got you know, initial stabilization of, uh, of XYZ. But in this type of situation, what should be your expectation of what EMS is going to be doing in the mass casualty compared to a normal day? So hopefully most of, I guess, what we would call the stabilization work or what in this venue are called um, LSIs, life-saving interventions, will be done. You should expect that they're going to have aggressive use of tourniquets. Uh, those tourniquets are going to be high on limbs and probably over clothing. Uh, if a casualty has enough blood on their clothing and the uh, in event is dramatic enough, you may have tourniquets on uninjured limbs because when the firefighter, paramedic, or law enforcement officer showed up, there were two bloody arms and he didn't go looking for holes. You're going to see very limited airway intervention, maybe nasal pharyngeal airways, or you're going to see patients with surgical airways. You're not going to see a lot of rapid sequence intubation, traditional endotracheal tube intubation. You're going to see very aggressive decompression of tension pneumothorax, or at least what the first responders thought could be tension pneumothorax. You're going to have pretty limited IVIO access, and you're probably going to have pretty limited triage because they're going to have to put multiple casualties in the same ambulance to try to get them to the hospital as soon as possible. As you're looking at patients that are brought in, what should be your mindset or what is an effective mindset of how you evaluate them and how you even look at the interventions that have already been done? I start with something I learned uh, in the Special Forces Medical Sergeants course. My job is to figure out what's killing them now and fix it. Then I'll move on to the next thing that tries to kill them, and then I'll fix that. We're in an environment now, because we're overwhelmed with casualties, we're not going to be able to fix everything. We need to fix them enough to get them to somebody else, definitive surgical repair, etc. So I still really like the military's mnemonic for March, massive hemorrhage, airway, respiration, circulation, and hypothermia prevention and management. So it's a modified version of the ABCs. I start with that. Is all their external massive hemorrhage controlled? Do they have an airway? Do they have a radial pulse? Can they follow commands and work my way down from that? And you can do that pretty rapidly on a casualty, particularly one that someone else is taking care of some of those interventions. Let's say you know, an, an ambulance drops off five people. You're looking at one person, they've got a tourniquet on one arm, they've got a tourniquet on one leg, they've got a, a needle in one side, of, one side of the chest, and they're fully clothed. What are you going to do about that needle and those two tourniquets? And you do, let's say you, you don't see active bleeding going on, they're talking to you, they have a pulse. Walk me through managing what's happened pre-hospital. If you give me five casualties simultaneously and one of them is, as you described, who's talking to me and has a radial pulse, I'm moving on to the next casualty. Let's say they're all talking and have radial pulses. So if they're all talking and have all have radial pulses, then for our first pass, nobody is immediately dying right in front of us this second. Now we can be a little more sophisticated. We can start getting clothing off people. Uh, where are the wounds? Did the wounds actually need tourniquet application? Uh, can we start downgrading tourniquets? 
there used to be a sense that anyone who underwent pre-hospital needle decompression was was probably going to end up having to get a chest tube. Uh, there was at least one study I saw years ago that showed that a lot of pre-hospital needle decompressions, if they turn out to be unnecessary, the catheters can be removed and patients don't go on to get a big pneumothorax and it doesn't necessarily buy them a chest tube. If you're overwhelmed with casualties, you may just take the presence of that needle decompression as an indication that they're going to get an empiric chest tube. Uh, and if you're overwhelmed with casualties, you're probably going to have to make that decision without the availability of x-ray. So we've mentioned a few times that someone is talking and someone has a radial pulse and that these are things that are involved in decision-making that are kind of outside the norm. What is it about those two things as far as binary decision points that have you decide whether you're going to pay attention to this person or they can wait? I first learned about this concept when it was uh, published by Brian Eastridge. It was called the Field Triage Score, and it was actually published in 2010. And they took a database of just shy of 5,000 uh, military casualties, and they broke them into three groups. If you had a radial pulse, specifically in the study, it was a, a blood pressure higher than 100 millimeters of mercury, which they correlated into the presence of a radial pulse. And you could follow a simple command. You had a normal GCS motor score. They didn't do the rest of the GCS. That showed about a 2% death rate. Uh, so those casualties at that point, just that weren't that sick. And it was the majority of their casualties. Then the other extreme casualties who had no radial pulse and who couldn't follow a simple command, didn't have a normal GCS motor score, they had about a 40% death rate, but it was the minority of their casualties. And so it's a really simple way uh, to stratify casualties into basically three groups. And I use it a lot when I train law enforcement, because if law enforcement is going to start collecting casualties in one of these active violent incidents, they don't have a lot of medical training, and it's pretty easy to take a cop who can find a radial pulse and ask somebody to squeeze his fingers, and he can now stratify your casualties into one of three groups. Part of the key there is you're stratifying them not based on their injuries or the anatomic location of their injuries. You're stratifying them specifically on how sick are you right now. A lot of triage systems try to anticipate your likelihood of deteriorating. Uh, this concept of the field triage score, what uh, is now often referred to as ramp triage by a firefighter paramedic named uh, Brad Keating, who came up with the concept pretty much at the same time. This field triage ramp idea is we're looking for casualties that are literally dying in front of us right now. We were talking about EMS before and, you know, and, and how many people are going to come and, you know, people are going to come by all different modalities. And most people in a mass casualty, is, as I understand it, are going to come on their own. They're not going to come by any sort of EMS or, or police or fire. That has generally been the case. When I was uh, training emergency physicians in Nairobi in 1998 and the American embassy was blown up, there was no formal EMS system in Nairobi at the time. So wounded uh, victims of the bombing were just flagging down pickup trucks, and these trucks were bringing you know, in huge quantities of casualties to the hospital. Uh, there's literature showing that 28% of casualties in some active shooter events uh, self-present to the hospital on their own. And in Las Vegas, which is a little bit of an outlier, I think 80% uh, of casualties did not present via EMS. Basically, they found their own way to the hospital. When you're talking about 
Nairobi and all you know all these people kind of you know flagging down pickup trucks and and coming in and we th- you know we think about maybe a community hospital or you know a hospital doesn't normally do trauma or or big trauma or lots of trauma as being easily overwhelmed but I heard you say at one time that even a trauma center can be easily overwhelmed. It just, it just takes five simultaneous trauma patients to overwhelm them. Correct. And that also came from uh, the CDC predictor, if I'm remembering correctly. And if you think about, you know, we're all residency trained, um, pretty much all trained at trauma centers. One trauma, easy. Two traumas, not a big deal. Four traumas, uh, do you have the surgical support to do that? Do you have that many available operating rooms? Do you have, you know, your blood bank's going to start to be overwhelmed? Things are going to grind to a halt very, very rapidly. And then just imagine, no matter how controlled your event is, five simultaneous traumas is chaos in an emergency department. A lot of the success or failure of an event like this, at least in the the hospital arena. It sent some in the in the pre-hospital. I want to I want to talk about the first receiver in the hospital has to do with organization, making sure that what you're doing is done in a cogent, structured, focusing on throughput and saving lives way. So when people talk about these things, like there's so much detail that that gets discussed, all this really granular, granular stuff that when you're in the thick of it, you know, sort of it becomes white noise. So. From an organizational standpoint, let's say you have warning. We'll talk, I'm going to talk about warning and no warning and lessons learned from other places. But from an organizational standpoint, say you have a little bit of warning. What are the key things to do to set yourself up so that you focus your resources in this new way on this throughput and saving lives rather than the way that hospitals normally run? So the first thing to remember is, although we typically do refer to these events as no-notice events, it's a term the, the government uses, generally you do have about 10 minutes warning, which I guess realistically is still pretty much no-notice, but you do have a minute. So things you need to think about from the emergency department is step one, you need to get the emergency department empty. Anyone who's been admitted needs to be taken out of the ED immediately. Patients that are obviously going to be admitted, but we haven't finished their workup, uh, become a hospitalist problem. The hospitalist should just take them out of the emergency department. Anyone who's going to be discharged, waiting for discharge, they just need to be getting, they just need to be taken out because that's going to generate space. Then the next thing we need to think about doing is designating our care areas. Where are we going to put our immediate red, you know, significantly injured patients? Where are we going to put our green, minimal, minor, walking, wounding, wounded patients? Uh, a lot of that green group often is put in like PEDS ED areas because a PEDS ED nurse isn't really comfortable with hardcore trauma on an adult, but they can do wound management and they're less... Um, You know, they're not overwhelmed by fractures and those kinds of things. So we need to start sorting out our uh, different areas of care. Then we need to start thinking about who we're going to assign to our triage area. We need to move all wheelchairs and stretchers to the triage area. We need security in the triage area, both to try to keep the individuals that are working there safe if it's a terrorist event, but also, again, just for think about vehicle throughput. Uh, one technique that I learned from looking at some after actions on Las Vegas, which I like a lot and I would apply at my emergency department, you know, St. Vincent's where I used to work as well, is where the ambulances pull in, 
the ambulances park. And if we're going to get a whole boatload of ambulances and cars with casualties, nobody can park there. You need to pull in, the vehicles need to be offloaded, and the vehicle needs to leave. If not, it's going to become just a parking lot. So one way to prevent that is you put all your wheelchairs and stretchers in the ambulance kind of pull-through area so the ambulances can't drive in there. And literally, and there's usually another street right next to that, that's where they pull in, offload their patients, and then they never get out of the vehicle. That's going to then kind of establish our triage point. The next thing is we need to cancel all non-critical surgeries in the hospital, uh, particularly these active violent incidences uh, result in a lot more ICU and surgery bed use than typical disasters. So we need to have a plan for that. One thing that we need to think about is we do need to start recalling staff to the hospital, but you can't recall all the staff because somebody's got to pull a shift tomorrow. And this has turned out to be a little bit of a problem in some of these events, because if you're in healthcare, you're motivated, you want to help people. And this horrible event happens in your community and overloads your hospital. There's an above average chance you're going to come to work, whether they need you or not. And in some events, the hospitals have had to turn away some staff and say, Hey, you, you need to go get eight hours of sleep because tomorrow morning we need you to be at work as planned. We need to think about our PACU is immediately going to become a, a secondary ICU. We might have to convert single ICU beds or rooms into doubles. We need to think about the hospitalists. Obviously, as soon as they're notified of an event like this, they need to start discharging anyone who doesn't absolutely need to be in the hospital to free up space. We need to think about things like a temporary morgue. Um, this has been a problem for some hospitals who don't really have a lot of ability to hold dead bodies. They're pretty typically sent to the funeral homes fairly quickly. And one place that has been used successfully during other events uh, has actually be, been the endoscopy suite because it's got a, generally has its own HVAC system. Uh, and one thing that is often overlooked from the emergency department is the entire hospital needs to be locked down for security purposes. Uh, obviously, casualties are going to start coming in from all different directions, particularly if they self-present. They may not necessarily know where the emergency department entrance is. So if there's security at all the doorways, they can help with the initial management of those casualties. And unfortunately, in many parts of the world, hospitals are terrorist targets. Uh, and so you need to be able to secure your hospital. And a lot of that has to do with disaster planning, right? Like you've got you've got your committee, like here's what we're going to do. There's a whole cascade of events that goes on. And I think that's all well and good. We are going to shift this hospital's mindset. We're going to shift the throughput of this hospital, kind of what happens with patients. The expectation is not that, hey, we're going to give you this this start to finish, soup to nuts, great hospital experience. Now, my job is to keep you alive until the next step in your care, and then you go. It's just, there's not stay in play. It's just, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take care of you. Next step. Correct. Next person. It's, it's very much a conveyor belt. It's very much a conveyor belt. And uh, another important point on that model is it's one-way flow. The conveyor belt doesn't back up. So if you leave the emergency department for CT imaging of your brain, it's because you're going to the ICU where the neurosurgeon will see you there because your only injury is, you know, penetrating trauma to your head. You're not coming back to the emergency department. Once you leave the ED, there's no givebacks. We got more people coming in. We have no available space. You're going to someone else. I was going through your first receiver course, which is super involved, goes through all these details of all these different management points. I don't want to get into all of it because that would be like a full day podcast. 
But I want to get into some of the little granules in Mike Schertz's brain on how you would do this. So a couple scenarios. So let's say you're working and every one of these, you're going to be working. You're going to be working in the ED on a regular day. There's lots of people in the waiting room. Your ED is full. You've got your, your host of, you know, 10 patients that you're seeing. A couple ambulances in the ambulance bay. You get a call on the biophone. There has been an explosion downtown. You don't know anything. Multiple casualties, many on their way to your hospital. You've got five minutes. I mean, and I know that there are other people in the emergency department who are experienced in disaster planning, but you are the most experienced person and are going to have to take on a leadership role at this moment and get things going and get things shape-shifted to take care of this. So you've got five minutes. What do you do? Start designating where we're going to take care of the different acuity levels of patients. Let the secretaries know that all non-essential surgeries in the hospital need to be canceled. And let whoever's in charge of the emergency department, generally the charge nurse, know that anyone with a disposition admitted or discharged needs to immediately get out of the emergency department. What would you physically do as the leader? Grab charge nurse, the most senior nurses, and the most senior emergency physicians in that department for a quick 60-second, this is what we know, this is what we anticipate, this is what we need to do, and let them start disseminating it from there. Now we're at time three minutes. Where are you going to go? What are you going to do? Well, the the technical, you know, triage officer model is that you take your most uh, experienced physician, generally a surgeon, and put them as the triage officer. It's interesting because that's not really how American emergency departments work, right? All of our triage is done by triage nurses, and since my hospital we don't have a trauma surgeon, uh, I think I would probably still let the triage nurses do that triage because we have a lot more nurses than we have emergency physicians. Uh, but that's not typically how it's done in the kind of pre-planned triage officer model. Another thing I would do is I would get security involved very early in this planning process. So again, they can start blocking off that ambulance area uh, and they can assist with moving wheelchairs and stretchers, i.e. what in the military is called pre-positioning equipment that we're going to need. The time pressure is so acute before, you know, before the floodgates open. And I was talking with Kevin Menace, who's the lead doc in Las Vegas, obviously there was a lot of team involved. He did exactly what, what you're talking about. And, you know, you're talking about how he kind of blocked off the ambulance bay and put all the stretchers and wheelchairs out there. Different parts of the emergency department are going to be these zones. And a key thing to remember is that people's condition will change. You send someone to, to the orange zone or the yellow zone, depending on what identification or triage system you're using. You need to reassess. You need to be the lifeguard to see, are they changing from yellow to red? Do they need to go to the more acute zone? And that like kind of getting that message that, that this is not static. It's going to be a flood and then we'll have time. But that flood is the, those first couple hours, things are going to change so rapidly. And then he seeing himself as the most experienced doc, he went out to the street and pulled people out of cars and did his 
10 second CAT scan. You know, we were talking about, can you talk? Do you have a radial pulse? Can you talk? Do you have, what's your mental status? And triage from there. Okay, you go red, you go green. Because he had the idea of how the system would would work the best. And then being kind of at that choke point or that rate limiting step or that, that funnel head could say, all right, I think I can make the system work the best because I understand you know, how things are going to cascade from this initial point of triage. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. It, it worked, it worked very well in that environment. Uh, and I think the way he kind of tasked that out was pretty brilliant. The one thing I, I wonder about is it, I think it also depends on how many physicians you have in the ED. So if you're really limited, like if, if, if you're in a two physician, ED and one of them starts doing all that triage, you only really have one person in the back, so to speak, to do any interventions. So I think if you have a physician who can work as the triage officer, that makes sense. I just, I don't know how practical that is depending on the size of your facility or your emergency department. But I think it is an awesome model. And that's why traditionally that's what's been recommended. We're, we're talking about this as if there's some order to it, you know, but, but it, it's anything but because I mean, the, the things do happen in a somewhat predictable way, but there's always the wild cards a bit that you don't know. You know, the, the hospital could be a target of attack. Overwhelm could be in certain ways. There could be radiation. There could be chemical. I mean, there's always, you know, different aspects of this, but I want to get to some of the mass casualty events or active violent events that that have happened what happened and then the the lessons learned that can be applied to the next one and the the first one i want to talk about is Christchurch New Zealand this was an active violent situation there was a a shooter a lot of penetrating trauma i'm not sure how many hospitals were involved what what happened there so uh an individual went into a mosque, actually two mosques, and shot numerous people. Uh, Christchurch Hospital received 41 casualties in 45 minutes, which is an overwhelming number of casualties for you know any emergency department to even think about receiving. Uh, Christchurch Hospital is actually the largest hospital in southern New Zealand. It has about 600 beds, but still imagine you know 41 casualties in 45 minutes. There's there's no way to really absorb that number well. How did people arrive? What were the lessons learned? Well, a lot of the, um, some patients did self-present. Some patients were brought in by EMS. Uh, one of the problems they had run into was the mosque was actually fairly close to the hospital. And so mm. some uh, of the hospital property was closed down for security reasons. And I recall hearing uh, from a New Zealand uh, physician that was involved in that event, that the blood bank was kind of at the periphery of what I guess we could call the hospital campus. And it was not directly linked to the hospital once the security protocols uh, went into effect. The blood bank knew something had happened and basically just started hand carrying blood to the emergency department without ever being asked. And then you would have vehicles arrived multiple different trauma levels, multiple different injury levels in each vehicle. And how, like, what happened with that and how did it work out? Yeah. So you're talking about uh, environments where I, I believe the quote I had heard from New Zealand was that wounded, uninjured, and dead sometimes arrived in exactly the same vehicle. And if you think about that 
everybody's going to be covered in blood because they're all packed together in these vehicles. And so you're trying to untangle bodies, trying to figure out who's hysterical and covered in blood, but not physically wounded from someone who may have already expired or an extremist. How would you manage that situation? Well, the first thing, you're going to have to get them out of the vehicle. And that, again, is why I really like this idea, the um, field triage score ramp triage. If you pull them out of the vehicle and they have a pulse and they're able to follow a simple command, you immediately know they're probably not the sickest person in that vehicle anymore. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean in five minutes they won't be altered or hypotensive or these other things. It just gives you a snapshot in their physiologic state right now. One of the things that's I personally find challenging in all of this is the patient with no radio pulse and not following commands, which again, from that military DOD database of nearly 5,000 casualties, uh, has about a 40% mortality. There are schools of thought that say in a mass cal event, that group, no radio pulse, not following commands, should just be declared expectant or dead because their death rate is so high. I'm troubled by that because, again, based on that Iraq data, 41% of them are going to die. Well, that means 59% of them aren't. So you can make an argument that that's the group you start with. However, you have to realize that a good portion of those with no pulse and not following commands are physically dead because a corpse has no radio pulse and can't follow commands. And I wonder sometimes if now I'm extemporaneously speaking, I wonder sometimes if that's going to really hem up uh, rescuers, kind of like the uh, search dogs at September 11th that basically ended up with PTSD because they were going through the rubble in New York looking for people and day in and day out, they would go back to the rubble pile and find no one. And so I wonder a little bit. You know, if your providers don't recognize that the no radio pulse, no commands group, a bunch of them are going to be dead people. And that spins a lot of heads because in civilian medicine, uh, we're not used to environments where you go into a room and there's 30 casualties and 15 of them are dead. From Christchurch, what were the big lessons taken out of it? One thing that I thought was interesting is one of their first traumatic arrest patients was actually a little girl, uh, and they did, in the end, fully resuscitate her. I believe she got a massive transfusion, and I'll double-check elsewhere, but I believe she also had an ED thoracotomy. A lot of resources on this girl, but she did survive. And when I had seen a presentation by uh, one of the emergency physicians at Christchurch Hospital, he did acknowledge that... If they knew they were going to get as many casualties as they had gotten, they would have just declared her expectant. They wouldn't have put the resources into that. And although it's, it is awesome, obviously, that she survived, there have been similar lessons learned from other trauma centers that have been overwhelmed with casualties that in these environments, in these events, you don't do ED thoracotomies. It's too much resource. It's too much time. And the survival rate is too low. Stop bleeding. Secure an airway. Put in a chest tube. Give them some blood, move on. Pretty much. Your 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 life-saving interventions. They can't bleed to death externally. They can't die of airway occlusion. They can't die of tension pneumothorax. Do something to resuscitate them if they're, you know, in shock. Don't let them get hypothermic. And then they have to go someplace else. Oh, the hypothermia is that's an interesting one that I hadn't actually put into this whole picture because in a trauma resus, you have the room super toasty. 
you know, and you've got that that nice big trauma room. You know, you're kind of sweating at the end of it. It's just you're you're in your gown and everything's hot. But most of the recesses that are done, if you have 45 patients all at once, they're gonna be in the hallway or you know, or like multiple people in a room, and you're not gonna you're not gonna have that environmental warming, and you're probably gonna run out of your bear huggers very quickly. I mean, God, how do you manage the hypothermia aspect? It's interesting because I have to admit, despite being boarded in EMS and with all my you know military pre-hospital experience, I, I hadn't really appreciated how many of my standard ED patients would arrive mildly hypothermic. And there's military literature compared to the civilian level. There's literature showing that 9.3% of civilian trauma patients arrive to a trauma hospital hypothermic, defined as a body temperature under 36 Celsius. There's military data to say it might be as high as 18% in military settings, and that's even in Iraq, despite you know the environmental temperature being so high. And it wasn't until I started seeing some of this military literature, maybe 10, 15 years ago, that I started to realize that a huge portion of my GI bleed patients actually arrive hypothermic. And I had a ruptured ectopic gal the other day who also arrived hypothermic. So, you know, back to your question, when you have a triage area with blood all over the floors and people just laying on the ground, hopefully having been put in the recovery position, uh, covered in blood, it's going to be blankets, coats, whatever you have uh, to try to keep them as warm as possible. But yeah, a lot of them are going to be hypothermic, even mildly so. And I'm not sure there's a lot you're going to be able to do about it when you have 50 people covered in blood on the floor of your triage area. So I was speaking with an emergency doc who is in training in Beirut, Lebanon. And you know, I mean, I've heard you say that you know nobody is an expert in in a mass casualty or or disaster because you usually only see it once you know you can talk about it you can drill on it but it's not something you do over and over but boy in Beirut they i think that would probably be the area where they would have some expertise and we were speaking about what happened when the explosion happened last year she was in the emergency department and immediately you know the building shook the ceiling fell in the power went out and in minutes in minutes i mean nobody knew what was happening right i mean is the hospital being attacked is there a, a war is this a terrorist event is this i mean what is this the ed was overwhelmed with patients in minutes and you've got your emergency lighting on which she said it was just like you know dark and dusty and dim you couldn't see it. she said it was this really chaotic, especially in the beginning, you know, just trying to control bleeding and you, you don't know who's doing what, what's doing where. And I'm, I'm contrasting this with the conversations that we're having about, you know, having an, a somewhat ordered or controlled ingress of people. This was the exact opposite of it. You don't have control immediately from the, just by definition, there's no control. There's, you can't have leadership at least right away because everybody's affected by this. This is the true zero warning, true no warning first receiver situation. So when something like this happens and you already have the influx of patients and your infrastructure is also damaged as well, would your first steps differ in those first five, 10 minutes? It uh, it kind of reminds me, I believe, of the Mike Tyson quote that everybody has a plan until they're punched in the face. So I have a plan on how I'm going to run this environment in my emergency department. 
it becomes substantially more difficult when a portion of my employees in the emergency department are physically injured, as happened in a lot of the hospitals in Beirut. They were casualties themselves. And as you said, the, uh, you know, the roof is partially caving in. I would make the argument that even as casualties are pouring in, my first thought is, is it safe to stay in this building? Uh, depending on how damaged the building is, is the building going to collapse? Is the building going to pancake? Do we need to get everyone out of this building? That leads to a whole separate problem. Since we don't really know what happened or why it happened, I don't know if it's physically safe to leave the building. Probably because of my military bias, I don't know that there wasn't a vehicle-borne IED that was detonated outside of the hospital that caused this, and I don't know that there aren't individuals out there that are planning on shooting everyone as they exit the hospital. So these are a lot of details to try to go through uh, from a safety or security standpoint while you're also trying to take care of casualties. How would you try to organize that situation as it's coming in? I mean, t taking all of that into account, and there's there's a lot of unknowns with this, as as you say that you know you don't know what the threat level is to your safety and your staff safety. That's let's take that as a given. But as far as organizing the response to the casualties when there's no warning and you are you're overwhelmed before you know it. I think the first thing you'd have to make a decision is are we staying, you know, are we staying in this emergency department or do we have enough concern about the building we need to physically exit and obviously take as many casualties with us as possible. But you're right, what's probably going to happen is as you've described that enough casualties will present near simultaneously that you'll be pinned in place. Even if you wanted to leave, they'll just physically be too many patients to take with you and you'll probably get stuck there. And then it's a matter of sorting through, find the people that are the most mobile and the least injured and get them out. Again, when I was in Nairobi in 1998, uh, because of a large quantity of uh, lacerations from the um, plate glass on a lot of the buildings that were exposed to the embassy blast, there were, you know, quarter sized pieces of glass just littered all over that, uh, that crime scene. And that glass flew pretty far and there were thousands of casualties who had lacerations. And when they came to the hospital, security started turning some of them away if they just had lacerations. And literally I saw a security guard told some people I know you're injured, but the hospital is very busy today and you should go home and drink hot tea and come back tomorrow or the next day and they'll get you taken care of. And in this environment there, a lot of people actually went home and they came back three days later with their fractures and their lacerations and they were managed then. So as soon as you can decrease the number of casualties by I don't want to say get rid of, but I'm going to say get rid of the ones who don't need to be emergently managed right this second. You're now narrowing the problem. You're making the problem smaller, and we need to make it small enough that we can get some control of it. You say in your course that one of the sayings of the special forces is that all lessons are written in blood, that we don't want to relearn these lessons from the blood of our casualties. We don't want to relearn. This is what this entire conversation is about. And- what were the big things that you took away from Nairobi? And you talked about getting the people who are not needing immediate care out of the department and not flooding the hospital with them. But what else did you take away? 
The other thing that I think was most illustrative to me is all your imaging, at least some of this is a little bit of an era thing too. Nairobi did have CT scanners, but all your imaging was portable x-ray and it was only portable chest x-rays. Extremities for concern. If you have a concern, something's fractured, you don't need an x-ray right now. Um, There was very limited use of CT because it just doesn't necessarily change your ED management. It was only portable chest x-rays when you felt they were absolutely necessary. And it's interesting because I learned that in 1998, and I recall seeing a similar comment from an emergency physician uh, during one of Fort Hood's mass casualty shootings that had the same experience, that there was an x-ray tech, I think, taking a portable x-ray of a limb with a concern for fracture. And this ED doc's like, hey, no, we're not we're not doing that today. It's it's portable chests only. So again, a lesson, you know, learned, but yet we're still relearning these. And I and I think unfortunately that's one thing medicine does not do well is learn lessons from these big events. And I guess in defense of it, it's because they don't study well. You know, we can generate a statistic that 80% of the casualties in Las Vegas self-presented to hospitals without EMS. That's that's a quantifiable thing. But it's not as measurable to say, hey, ED thoracotomies take too long and Pulse nightclub got tied up in a few and then realized they weren't going to do that anymore. That's anecdotally interesting, but it doesn't really form robust medical literature. And so I feel like those things often don't get any attention, whereas in the military, lessons learned are incredibly valuable. What are the questions, taking all of this into account, what are the questions that you think people need to take to their hospital disaster planners or mass casualty planners? Do we have this? Do we do this? Or I mean, or what do you see are the common gaps in planning? The biggest question I would ask the hospital disaster committee is what is their existing plan? And specifically these no notice events, these these violent mass cals, if you look at the disaster literature, there's all sorts of reasons a hospital can have a mass cal. Um in these active violent incidents, there tends to be, again, higher use for ICU patients, or they, there tends to be more ICU critical care needs. There tends to be more patients going to the operating room. There tends to be a greater quantity of patients that require uh, EMS transport to the hospital. And if you have a generic disaster plan, you may not have considered some of those nuances on these active violent incidents. Um, and so what is their plan? And a one size fits all plan is it's a plan. But if you overlay some of these lessons learned, has your hospital figured this out? What's your plan for dead bodies? Where do you plan on putting them? How many can actually fit in your morgue? And again, the reason somebody figured out the endoscopy suite worked well for that was because they were working one of these events at a hospital and nobody knew where to put all the extra dead bodies and they had to figure it out. I don't know how many of these lessons learned are really going to be reflected in your hospital's disaster plan. Talking about all of the intricacies of this, I was speaking to one of the trauma surgeons from Vegas asking him 
you know, like what, what would he like to see for the future? I mean, and Vegas is this weird mass casualty town. Like these guys are telling me, oh yeah, we had this plane crash. We had this thing, this thing, this bus went through the, just the crowds. And, and, you know, I think they get, you know, more than the normal city. And he said, you know what I would like to have is a pallet is our mass casualty pallet that has all, and because we were talking about the basic things that you need to do, you know, you need to see it. Or, or you don't need to do it on everybody, but stop the bleeding, secure the airway, uh, ventilate the chest, give the blood. Said, I would love to have a pallet that is just filled with chest tubes, chest tube trays, surgical airways, laryngoscopes, endotracheal tubes, like just the stuff that we run out of, stylets. You know, you just run out of style. Said, I want a pallet that when, when the mass casualty is called, that pallet is brought up to the emergency department. And we're not going to run out of stuff. We have more than enough. And you don't, you don't become resource poor very quickly. And it could also be shared with different hospitals if one hospital is running out. Absolutely. And, you know, that happened in Las Vegas, right, where they ran out of chest tubes and they ran out of laryngoscope blades. And, and it's happened in other events as well to the point that I would argue, which is why I put this course together. It's predictable. It's foreseeable. And therefore it should be planned for. So what is your plan when you run out of chest tubes? Can you use a smaller chest tube? If you run out of small chest tubes, how are you going to do this? You need to plan in depth. In the military special operations community, we use what's called a PACE mnemonic. The P is the primary plan. I'm going to use inappropriately sized chest tube. The A is the alternate plan because the primary is not working. I'm going to have to use a smaller chest tube. The C is the contingency plan. I don't have any chest tubes whatsoever. I'm going to have to do an ED finger thoracotomy. And then the E is the emergency plan, which is sometimes referred to the as the everything went to shit plan. And we plan in depth because a plan is just a bunch of stuff that you're hoping will happen. It may not. You might need to have some alternate ideas. And trying to creatively free think in one of these events, it's not going to happen. But if somewhere in your head, you saw a presentation, you heard this podcast, somebody told you, okay, well, that's your primary plan. What's your alternate plan? What's your next plan? Maybe you'll be able to access that under stress because you thought about it ahead of time. That's lessons learned in blood. Mike Shirts, where can people find you? Where can people learn more about what you're doing? Uh, my website is crisis-medicine.com. Uh, my online in-person class information is there, and there's quite a few articles and blog posts and whatnot that are there as well on this subject. Uh, and then obviously that'll link you to all the usual social media platforms. Mike, thank you so much. Take care. Absolutely, Rob. And that is it for today. For complete and detailed show notes of this or any other episode, just go to our website, stimuluspodcast.com. And while you're there, you can also sign up for our occasional and irregular newsletter. If you're interested in our IMALS fundraiser, you can find a link to that in the show notes as well. You can subscribe to Stimulus pretty much any podcatcher that's out there. And if it happens to be the Apple podcatcher, happens to be iTunes, throw down a review and rating. I read all the reviews and more importantly, so do potential guests. Thanks in advance. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.